Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. The cut. 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 When I was 22, I made a decision that forever changed the course of my life. And I know that sounds dramatic, but hear me out. It's true. I actually had two job offers to choose from, a stable, well-paid job at a law firm in San Francisco and a sort of wild card option at a podcast in Oakland. And it was hard to choose between the two of them because one job was stable and reliable and had a better salary but the other one was fun. I mean, it seemed like a fun job. The thing is, I didn't have a safety net. I don't have savings. It seemed to make the most sense to pick the stable option. So I called my mom. My mom's a hardworking immigrant. She really wanted me to take this legal job because it was a career with longevity. But my dad had a different take. Okay, so let me just say here that my dad, I usually don't take his advice, Well, it's complicated, but he's a complicated man. (laughs) Like, one time I had to pick him up in the median of a major highway because his girlfriend left him there and he needed a ride. But for some reason, while riding the escalator up the 16th Street BART station in San Francisco, on a whim, I called him and I asked him what he would do. He said, Miha, you're going to have your whole life to do boring, easy jobs. If you want to take a risk, do it in your 20s. So I took his advice, and he turned out to be right. Because it doesn't really matter where advice comes from. In fact, some of the best advice comes from people who've been there and gotten it wrong. Like advice columnist John Paul Brammer. I mean, I pitched it to my editor as Queer Latinx Dear Abby Huffing Poppers. John Paul Brammer writes this advice column called Hola Papi, and it's mostly queer, very entertaining, and his book, by the same name, is a collection of the best columns from Hola Papi since its weird start. Because it started on Grindr, the gay hookup app. Unusual, I know, but Grindr was just breaking into news and media at the time and asked him to write a column. And people would often send me Hola Papi on there because I am, you know, Mexican. But I thought it would be so funny to take that and turn it into an advice column, sort of flipping it around like, 
Now you have to address me as Ola Papi because I'm your mentor. <laughs> I'm going to level with you, reader. I'm too hungover for this. Show. I am a Latino homosexual with a mismanaged anxiety disorder and an internet connection. Theoretically speaking, if I were to try to obtain poppers while visiting Mexico during one passionate summer of my bygone youth, imagine someone deciding to date you after they've seen the way you live. Your roommates have every right to call each other partner. It's their relationship. I once knew a couple who called each other honeydew and little lady. This is uncomfortable, and I wish my coworker would leave me alone. I have corgi tuition to pay. Their legs are so little, but their dreams are so big. Just go to any bodega in New York City and say Poppy sent you. Don't do that. I don't know what will happen to you if you do. Okay, so first of all, John Paul Brammer is hilarious. He literally has two articles up on Substack right now called Top 5 Rat Movies I've Made Up and Is Space Gay? But the thing is, pretty quickly, his Hola Papi advice column became much more than a goofy grinder experiment. Hola Papi is vulgar and stupid, but it's equally raw and sentimental and smart. A good place to go if you're lost and just want someone to be lost with you. Hola, papi. Hola, papi. Hola, papi. Hola, papi. Hola, papi. I want to dress gayer, but I'm afraid. I saw my manager on Grinder. Do I say something? How do I make peace with years in the closet? How do I fall in love with myself? Can I be proud of where I'm from, even if it sucks? How do I let go of my childhood trauma? Signed, damaged goods. Boring, closeted. Grinder finder. Silly putty. Signed, wasted time. There was this sort of unfilled niche that I accidentally stepped into where, you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of people don't have a whole lot of people they can ask questions about LGBTQ related stuff with. They don't have maybe someone in their immediate community where they can be like, hey, I'm gay or I'm bi or I'm trans. How do you approach this issue that I'm dealing with? So recognizing that I I couldn't just be funny all the time. I had to sort of bring some emotion and some genuine earnest advice into the whole equation. If I was just some person who had come from a lot of money and didn't have to have a job and I was living in some big house and I'm sitting here trying to relate to the queers who barely have any money and who are being ground down by capitalism and homophobia, etc., you know, I maybe wouldn't be Ola Papi. I would be Hello Father. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear from somebody who studied my problem. Mm-hmm. I want to hear from somebody who's gone through my problem. There's just something about that relatability about like you having gone through it that is valuable. Oh, absolutely. What makes someone qualified to give advice? What makes someone credible or qualified? So I thought about this a lot because I look at other advice columnists and I ask the same question. I'm like, you know, what are your credentials here? And some of them actually do have legitimate credentials to fall back on which is sort of the formula that I didn't want to emulate because I recognize that I'm just some guy. (laughs) I don't have a license. You know, like, I don't really think of myself as an expert in any way. What I am pretty good at, I think, is just being, like, a friend, someone at the bar that you can sort of talk to and can be relatable. So in using a lot of humor, I can sort of offset people's expectations that I'm some sort of life coach I can sort of embrace that unhinged, manic energy that the Ola Poppy columns have sort of become known for, and then put a healthy dose of how I really feel and some genuine emotions, some genuine, you know, empathy into it as well. And I think that that's where the recipe comes from for Ola Poppy. Are there any parts that you feel like you are faking it, like that you haven't really figured out yet? 
Oh, all of it. I think we're, <laughs> I think we're all sort of faking it to some degree. And that's just part of life because I, I think that, for example, media industry, writing industry, publishing industry, these are all very unnatural arrangements. <laughs> they sort of ask us to become actors, at least to some degree, in order to fulfill our duties. So in working all the jobs that I've worked in, and there have been many, um, be it a tortilla factory or a bookstore or a reporter, I felt like I had to zip myself up into a costume and sort of become this person that was not me. This is what sets Ola Papi apart from other advice columns I've read. When someone writes in with a question, JP doesn't launch into a solution. Actually, he shares a story from his own past that features the same kind of struggle or pain or confusion that the reader is dealing with. It's not clean or authoritative, but somehow, knowing that someone else survived the same thing, it helps. So one thing as a writer that I am super drawn and attracted to is those decisions we make that make no sense, um, especially in the context of like love or obligation. Hola, papi. Something bad happened to me. Can I be mad about it like years later? Signed, Indecisive. It was a slate gray afternoon in April. One of the many afternoons I threw down the drain in an attempt. In one chapter of his book, he had this incredibly heart-wrenching story about a relationship he had with a man named Carlos who had sexually assaulted him and who he continued to date. A wise person might surmise that perhaps Carlos and I were incompatible, given how often I was irritated with him. But I perceived my irritation, rather, as a character flaw in myself, a roadblock I had to overcome if I was ever to end up with someone as good as Carlos. I mean, like, if you look at that chapter, it's not just about this person who inflicted damage on me and who kind of ended up being this horrible person. It was also kind of a portrait of all the decisions I made to keep getting closer to him and to sort of move into his house. And even though I wasn't attracted to him to continue to keep going on dates with him and all this other stuff that I was doing, and I look back and I think, now what on earth <laughs> motivated you to do that? It seems like we are constantly having to justify our behavior in a way that makes it seem like the good guy or that makes us seem like we're acting logical. Yeah, you have to justify yourself. Yeah, you have to justify your actions and you have to sort of talk about like maybe what pain or personal trauma caused you to act in this way. And I think that that can sort of get a little boring and not reflective of how life actually works. Sometimes we just make decisions that are completely left field and there is no really good justification for it. There's no absolution from some personal trauma or from some personality quirk or what have you that can sort of make what happened okay. <laughs> uh, and I love stuff like that because it's sort of like, that's what makes us textured, fully dimensional people. <laughs> so why did I keep going, indecisive? Why? when he poured us two glasses of wine and we sat at a card table with a tablecloth and lit candles, did I do my best to conjure what I liked about Carlos? I thought about how dignified he made me feel, how he offered me glimpses of some other kind of life where people spoke foreign languages and talked about books I hadn't read. In the soft, warm light, I rooted for him and against my intuition. So yeah, that chapter was very much not about me trying to be like, I can't believe Carlos did this to me. Because in that chapter, actually, the betrayal comes from myself. It comes from a past version of me 
that treated him with kindness <laughs> even after he had sexually assaulted me. And you know, if you saw someone else having that conversation with your abuser, you would be like, I'm so betrayed right now. But it was me doing that. <laughs> My previous exchange with Carlos, on the surface, looked friendly enough and would look that way to any third-party observer. But I knew better now. I recognized in my past self a feeling, again, of obligation. The version of me in that hotel room and the version of me that replied to Carlos were both me and not me, guided by different understandings and contexts and subconscious motives that maybe I'll never be able to unearth. And yet, they are me nonetheless, in the geological way the Earth is layered. Ancient, old, recent, new, in a gradient toward the surface. But I, me, myself, stand at the top. And from here, with the freedom of movement it grants me, I've come to think that it's fine, and perhaps expected, to change your mind. After the break, I ask Ola Papi for advice. Stay tuned. I wonder if everything that you've written in your book is something that you've already come to terms with. I am so jealous of you. <laughs> I'm so jealous of you. I have so many issues, and like half of them are addressed here. But one line in your book that really stuck with me was that you were describing yourself, your mom, and your sister as, like, Americans with a squeeze of lime. And that, like, working in that Mexican restaurant as a teenager and how you were learning Spanish with the workers, but that you felt like you were deliberately undermining the work your abuela had done to make you white. Like, that just, like, oh, my God. That got right. That got me right, <laughs> right in the feels. Um so, like, you're turning your cultural experiences like that into advice. So, but my question for mm -hmm. you, like, seriously, from me, Jasmine, to you, mm -hmm. is, like, did you get over those issues? Am I going to get over my issues? <laughs> like... Yeah, so I, I do think that I have at least reached a peace with that issue, um, which I don't know how long that peace is going to last, because it seems like people's understanding of race is constantly changing. But also some of those conversations can be really painful and difficult to deal with because, so for example, uh, my Mexican family, my abuelos, my mom, they are definitely brown people, especially my abuelos, they were more dark-skinned people. And so they dealt with a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have to deal with. And when I, you know, going onto Twitter, for example, it's funny, I think people classify... Um, <laughs> Mexican-Americans as different races all the time yeah. <laughs> on Twitter, yeah. where it's just like, one day you're white, one day you're like, have indigenous ancestry, one day you're neither, you're mixed or whatever. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's extremely exhausting. And uh, it, it it strikes me as being like, okay, no one has settled on this. And maybe no one ever will settle on this. It's going to be shifting. And I think that that's a quality inherent to the system of race. You have to have that flicker quality, otherwise race wouldn't work. It has to sort of constantly be seeking to put you in this category when it's convenient to sustain itself and then put you in that category whenever it needs to survive. And that's a feature, it's not a bug. And so in sort of separating myself from, I, you know, completely identifying within that system, I think is really healthy because there are times where, yes, it's very uh, important and critical of me to acknowledge places where I have privilege, places where I've been given things that other people wouldn't. But it's also important to recognize that I'm not the one making those shots. We're sort of living in a system that assigns people certain things and denies other people other things, depending on resources, depending on protecting capital. 
these are all things that we have to negotiate our bodies and beings with. And that can be a really difficult conversation, but it is a conversation and that means it's ongoing. So for me, my piece is very much sort of there where I think about like, you know, who's hurting? How can I help them? Um, I talk about in the book that like the experiences that racialization produces, that's the important stuff rather than figuring out I am this or I am that. (laughs) I wonder if the secret is just storytelling, like understanding Mm -hmm. yourself through storytelling. And so the fact that like you might be even, even if it's rarely motivated by giving yourself the assignment of figuring out that question, it allows you a method that is external from your person, your connection to yourself that's like connected to your job as a way of addressing that. Absolutely. I mean, we've been sort of talking about imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. also just trying to figure out how to approach trauma or how to approach issues in a certain way. And I think that a lot of it comes down to just settling on the narrative about that thing. It's not necessarily that we (laughs) have the complete correct answer. It's more just that once we have decided on a story for something, then we can understand it. Even if that story is one that doesn't have a happy ending. Does getting a question about something that you are actively struggling with motivate you to resolve it? Yeah, I would think so. I'm sure that that's happening. So one sort of example would be that I got this one letter from this trans man who was dealing with male pattern baldness and he was really afraid of it. He was like, this is something that I didn't know I was going to have to deal with because, you know, I transitioned and I was getting more at peace with myself and my body. And then my body does this other wild thing that I wasn't expecting. And I have a really severe case of body dysmorphia and the idea of it really scares me. And that letter scared the crap out of me because I <laughs> I remember I was in college and I had this one episode related to body dysmorphia where I locked myself in my apartment for like a week and I didn't want to go outside or have anyone see me because I really thought that if anyone looked at me, they would feel like secondhand embarrassment or they would think it was funny or they would be like, oh, this poor guy. That's how severe it sometimes got. And so in just engaging with this letter about having a body and things happening to your appearance that you can't control because this is sort of the process of things and, you know, how do you put yourself between it and that? Oh God, it really made me super anxious. And that was a case where I was like, oh, but I really want to answer this because I feel so, it's so relatable to me and I feel like I have ways of coping with this that I can maybe share But I think those are a little bit rarer ones where I'm like, oh, this letter is a little bit of an assignment for me. I need to make sure that my thinking on this is sort of coherent and that I have good advice to give. And also I can sort of present my relatable story to it in a way that doesn't feel like I'm just speaking over them. When you do revisit your memories and your personal experience in order to help someone else and you you rethink them for yourself, like... Having to do that, aren't you afraid that you're going to run out of, of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, or, or can you repurpose? Like, that would be my fear, is that I'm like, I need to go out and do some crazy shit so I can learn from it, so I can help other people learn from no, it. Okay, so listen, don't tell our good friends at The Cut about this, but I'm starting to be like, oh my god, am, have I run out? <laughs> because I'm just like, you know, I haven't really been living much of a whole life this past year plus. And I think I draw a lot of inspiration from the natural turbulence that we encounter in our lives, the daily sort of 
shocks and throws and bumps and bruises that we get from going on a bad Tinder date or taking a trip to some city that we thought was going to be great and it ended up not being that great. I really love stuff like that. That's how I get my material. And I'm finding lately that I'm taking more pauses between writing new columns and also just writing new stuff in general. As bored as I am, I don't have a whole lot to write about <laughs> at the moment. Um, but I think that also... <laughs> I, I used to think this about music as well. I remember listening to new songs in high school or whatever and thinking to myself in this very panicked way, aren't we going to run out of sounds? Aren't yeah. we going to run out of, like, <laughs> rhythms? Aren't we going to run out of, like, lyrics? Like, how can yeah. we possibly... And the reality is that the alphabets and words and the English language and music and art, they can all be sequenced in new and exciting ways infinitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look at, like, a deck of cards. You can rearrange them in so many different ways that it's, I think in more sequences than atoms there are in the earth or whatever, some wild fact like that. And so I think, no, I'll be fine. At the beginning, you talked about advice columns being like not who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, do you feel now that you've really stepped into that space, you've written this book, you, you now have this way mm -hmm. of being and understanding yourself that is like, it works, obviously. So do you, <laughs> do you feel like you are the advice columnist? Yeah, it's interesting. So writing a book was always my goal. I started out as a writer kind of in high school, really. And so I just kept pushing and pushing for that. And I think my whole writing career has just been in anticipation of this book, of just being like, okay, I just want to put something together like this. Um, and after I brought myself into perfect alignment with that goal, it actually opened up a whole new identity crisis where I was like this looming specter of the adios poppy, the idea that I can't write this column forever and that at some point... I kind of want to stop doing it, but also it's become such a core part of who I am and what I do on a daily basis. I mean, I sometimes get recognized as Ola Poppy, you know, and that's something that you have to sort of bring into your identity forming it to some extent where it's mm. just like, but I'm Poppy. I can't just stop being Poppy. I mean, I think that I am 100% <laughs> Ola Poppy. <laughs> like, I think that I've proven that maybe more than anyone else in the world has that I am Ola Poppy. But in terms of being an advice columnist, uh, I still don't see myself that way. Even when I was writing my advice column, I rarely saw it as an advice column. I saw it as just like a convenient medium for me to do the writing that I like to do. I never really thought of myself as like an heir to Dear Abby or, you know, Dear Prudence or any of these other amazing advice columns that are out there. I never saw myself really in conversation with that group of people just because I'm not really super focused on giving people concretes at the end of every column and saying, like, do this, break up with them, sis, like that sort of <laughs> thing. Yeah, I do that sometimes, but only when I feel like it. So, you know, freedom is really important to me. Um, and I've done that with Olapapi a few times where, like, there was this one time where someone wrote in asking, hey, I saw my manager on Grinder. what do I do? And, of course, the answer is don't do anything, mind your business. But I had, like, several hundred other words to fill before I could turn in that column. So I, like, interviewed a bee expert about whether or not the bees were actually dying and what we could do about it. <laughs> like, to this day, it's just, like, one of my more successful ones. So the ability to just completely play with form and to completely sabotage the idea of um, rubrics and structures... I think is really fun to me and it's something that I hope to continue to do and I think I'm going to carry that with me whether I'm doing Ola Papi or not. Yeah, yeah, it's that's part of just your style. Yeah, I think so. 
John Paul Brammer's book, Hola Papi, How to Come Out in a Walmart Parking Lot and Other Life Lessons, comes out June 9th. Audio excerpts courtesy of Simon & Schuster Audio from Hola Papi by John Paul Brammer, read by the author. Copyright 2021 by John Paul Brammer, used with permission from Simon & Schuster, Inc. The Cut is produced by me, B.A. Parker, Skylar Swenson, and Noor Busidi. Edited by Kelly Prime. Mixed by Alex Higgins. Our executive editors are Hannah Rosen, Stella Bugby, and Nishat Kurwa. The Cut podcast is made possible by the team at New York Magazine. Subscribe to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Jasmine Aguilera. Thanks for listening.